such a wonderful means of grace, truly, to sit before the ordinance of the Lord and, you know, and to do it with such meekness. I noticed that, that you really can't, I've been in a couple of churches before this one, and, and it's just a, a testament of uh, testimony to the grace and, and uh, mercy of God to allow us to love his word as much as he enables us to and to, to bear his word and to sit through and, and truly love his word and receive his word through really the, so many intervals that we can go through in a service. And uh, it really is a testimony of God's grace that he's given us a, a hunger and thirst for him. And so with that being said, I'll go ahead and we're in, uh, we're in just still really just the beginning of the Beatitudes. Today, we're going to be looking through verse 5 and verse 6. And I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And we're going to get this text really just ingrained in our, in our minds and heightened in our hearts together as long as we're uh, in this little mini-series here. So I'm going to read this before you. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and, began to teach, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, or meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. you may be seated. And I'm just going to go ahead and pray once more before we get into our message today. Father in heaven, um, Lord, I want to thank you for allowing us to come before your throne of grace today to enable us, O oh God, to uh, have hearts that truly long and yearn for your word and, um, and, Lord, and long to see the day where we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and partake of that heavenly food. Lord, I pray for this message, God, that you would give me engaged and responsive hearts to this message, not simply hearers of the word, O oh God, but doers of the word. You say that you know your sheep, you love your sheep, and that they hear your voice. And God, I pray that today that our ears would be open to hear your voice and responsive, O oh God, to act accordingly to this message, God. And I also pray for conviction not only in preaching, God, but in our hearts and the illumination of the Spirit to illuminate our darkness and shine light, Lord, where our understanding might be darkened. And Lord, I pray on behalf of my preaching and teaching, Lord, that you would grant me the faithfulness to lead this congregation in a word that is faithful and 
protective. And uh, God, I pray that you'd grant me the ability to rightly divide your word. Lord, I pray these things in your name. We bless your name. Amen. Amen. As we commence into this time of teaching here, I just wanted to take a moment to, uh, to thank you once more for being so gracious and long-suffering with me. I truly appreciate it. I don't deserve the opportunity to come before such godly and lovely people such as yourselves, but the Lord has seen fit to put me in this position, and, uh, and it's by His grace that I stand up here today. And so for the sake of refreshing our memories, um, we are currently taking a break from the book of Hebrews and are reviving our souls and stimulating our minds uh, with what Christ taught in the Beatitudes, which is really just the preface on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you remember, what we said about the Beatitudes last time is that each Beatitude is, uh, it comes with, it's, it's, it has a double intention and it has uh, two clauses. The first being a declaration of blessedness upon a specific individual or person who has received and possesses these particular uh, characteristics or these particular traits that Christ himself affirmed and he calls blessed. And the second being the basis or the reason um, for such a declaration of blessedness. And so we also mentioned that Matthew here, uh, while he's giving us an outline of this sermon, was not merely recording statements made by Christ on uh, on what we are to do, but exclamations made by Christ on who and what we are as those who are blessed and in Christ to receive these heavenly blessings. Uh, the Beatitudes are not instructions on how to get into the kingdom of heaven as if you could merit salvation by practicing one or any of these, uh, but they merely just tell us who is in the kingdom of God. They are descriptions of who is in the kingdom. And furthermore, as we continue this study, there's a couple of things that I wanted you to, uh, that, that are worth mentioning, that I wanted you to take note of, and it's this Greek word, makarioi, this word blessed. Um, that is what the English translation renders that word, and, uh, and it, ha- it is a word, as we will see, with great weight and density, blessed. Um, and so there are three things that I wanted you to get from this word as, as, we, uh, as we get into this sermon, and one is its origination, its signification, and its termination. I know that rhymes, and I just was trying to figure out a way to be creative. Maybe you could remember that. But its origination, this is what I want you to, this is what I want you to remember, is that what this declaration of, of blessedness is primarily rooted in and presupposes is the hearty approval and good pleasure of God to bestow good and, and worthy gifts on unworthy people that each of these declarations of blessedness finds its source in God. He is the source of blessedness. The second term here is signification. The word blessed is a word that denotes a kind of fullness within itself. It carries with it a very broad meaning, which signifies an all-inclusiveness and completeness. When Christ declares a man blessed, he, he doesn't just have in view one single reward, not just one single reward but, or one single blessing, but every blessing. And that's what you'll notice when you ponder on the second clause of each of these Beatitudes, is that when it calls a man blessed, it isn't just saying that he has a place materially in a pew of a church, but he has a place in the kingdom of God. Truly, it's much more, it's much more broad-reaching than, than what, what we might think of it as. 
And, uh, and not just that, it, it doesn't just, uh, they don't just receive material comforts, uh, temporal comforts, but everlasting enjoyment of eternal pleasures. And um, those who are blessed, they don't inherit a city, as we have seen in verse 5. It says, this is our verse, blessed are the meek. They don't just receive a city, but they inherit the earth. And so these blessednesses, that Christ declares are much broad and have much more depth uh, than, than, what you might, uh, than what you might gather upon uh, an initial reading of this text. And that is what Christ is trying to show us here. In fact, there's an old Reformed joke. Really, actually, it's really a, a, a comeback to really bad theology, this deformed and misinformed theology. And to those who might ask you, sir or ma'am, have you received the second blessing? What do you say? I've received every blessing, every blessing. And that's exactly what uh, Ephesians tells us. Blessed be God, and, and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, that, and the word blessed here, it expresses, uh, this is the last point, it's the termination or who this blessing falls on is the recipient of God's grace who has found favor in God's eyes, thus rendering every single one of these blessings as free and undeserved, and you cannot uh, do anything to, uh, to deserve these or merit these on your own accord. And so going forward, uh, we want to start by the, the, the Beatitudes don't necessarily tell us how to be happy. Um, but they tell us how to be blessed. And that's very uh, important to understand. It's not preached everywhere. And so previously what we did look at is the progressive nature of these pronouncements of blessedness. And we saw that uh, the key to all the stores of these blessedness, uh, these stores of uh, these, these blessednesses, these, um, these pronouncements of blessing from Christ all start and go through the door of the first beatitude. That is the key to the rest of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the narrow, this is the narrow way and the straight gate by which few enter into the kingdom of God. And for the unconverted sinner, this is where the gospel begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are, are, who are, who are unable to see uh, their bankruptcy before God and are able to confess that. That is the narrow way. And without being poor in spirit, you will never be saved. And we don't care if you've signed a card or you've prayed a prayer or walked an aisle somewhere, um, but, if you but if you have never been poor in spirit, you'll never be or enter into uh, the kingdom of God. You'll never be meek or gentle unless you are first poor in spirit. And you will never hunger and thirst for righteousness until you've seen that you're barren and you are truly empty as you are truly without Christ. And you will never be merciful to others until you have received and cried for mercy yourself. Until you've been able to see your own misery, until you've been able to feel the whole weight of your sins upon your shoulders. So the Christian is no stranger to the Beatitudes. Um, they are no stranger. Rather, the man of God the woman of God, um, they have an intimate relationship with the Beatitudes. They hide them in their heart, having experienced them already to one degree or another. The Christian is no stranger to these. 
And the Christian has been blessed to see their spiritual poverty and bankruptcy before God. And not only that, the Christian has been blessed for their ability to mourn over sin. And that is a blessing indeed. And the reason for the grief that is herein described in one's mourning over their sinfulness is a result in shame that follows because they have disappointed the one who has been most gracious to them. And so this is the great humiliation that molds the Christian into a state of gentleness and lowliness and rendering him meek, ready for service. And so we get into, this is the third beatitude. This word here, this is what it says, makarioi hoi praes. And this is, blessed are the gentle or meek, for they will inherit the earth. As we get started, there is a question that I want you to ask, and it is this, who are the blessed? Who are the blessed? As you see, uh, the first three or four, the attitude of the first three or four beatitudes really are, uh, the first three are merely uh, inward heart exercises, but the first four really all together are, are one's attitude towards God. And you kind of see that the, the, the last half, the, the last four, are really how he's been affected by God and now he, how his attitude is towards men. But who are the blessed? The blessed are the repentant. The blessed are those who have learned that the way up is down and, and winning is by losing and that life is found in death to self. And those who are meek experience and live the life that springs from dying to self. The meek are those who know that God is mighty and altogether worthy of their glad submission. Further, the word praes, or gentle, in our text can be somewhat of a difficult word to translate. As you, you probably see through different translations, blessed are the humble, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the, are the meek, and it seems that this word could, could rightly be translated as any of those, but uh, interpreters have struggled to pinpoint what exactly, uh, does, what exactly can, can give us the right meaning of the Greek word. And uh, all of those words truly would be fine in, in, in one sense or, or another, um, but we want to try to capture the fullness. And so uh, I'm going to try, uh, I love the word meekness. My Bible says gentle, um, but, I, but I would like to turn your attention to a few key texts, and, and I'm going to be going semi-quickly here, so I'll actually just read these to you to kind of help us get a sense of this word. And so well, where I'm going here first is um, I wanted to go to, what we have to understand about gentleness is that it cannot be separated from the word humility. And so you have in Matthew eleven twenty nine where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. In Ephesians 4, 2 through 1, Paul exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy with which we have been called with all humility and gentleness. And so you can see how these words are being used in context. And so you can, you can, we can take this a little further and you can see how uh, meekness is also mentioned with this word gentleness. Paul goes on to implore the Corinthian church by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 
In another text, though it is rendered as gentleness in the NASB, um, I believe the more accurate re- rendering of this word in Galatians 6.1 is meekness. Uh, Paul writes, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. And I believe the meaning that you want to drive from this passage is one of humility and simultaneous watchfulness, not merely gentleness, but a meekness. As you've seen in the Beatitudes that the first was poor in spirit, and the second was mourning over sin, and then you have meekness. It's, it's a person who is, now they are, uh, their, their sin is, is ever before them, they have realized it, they acknowledge that they're sinners, and that they can fall at any moment. And so this word meekness really means I'm going to restore a brother or a sister in Christ knowing that I can fall and knowing that if I'm not, if, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not careful here then, or puffed up with pride or something, then I can, uh, I can fall into sin myself. And that's what he says, restore someone in a spirit of meekness. Um, and it says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And so we see these words uh, and we, we see these words being used side by side, that Jesus wasn't merely, uh, he is our example, but he wasn't just merely uh, gentle, but he was also humble. And he wasn't just humble, uh, but he was also meek. And so what is meekness? What is meekness? Um, I struggled to define this word a little bit, uh, but I'm going to give it a shot here. I said that meekness is the product of a mourning soul who was once on the brink of utterly perishing under the weight and greatness of their iniquities, who is now given to a life of great sorrow because they have been washed in the blood that was spilt by their sin. They have seen that the grace of God is greater than the greatness of their sins and that the backdrop of their life of lawlessness, the love and compassion of God towards them is as nails that pierce their hearts and knives that thrash at their souls. Those who were once blind now see it, and those who were once numb to sin now feel it, and those who are poor in spirit now mourn over sin, and the result is meekness, gentleness, and lowliness. And so men are meek and gentle with others because they have a true estimate of who they are inside of who God is. They can associate with the lowly having been humbled themselves. They confess that God is holy and that they are truly terrible sinners. And this is a question. What happens when meekness is gone? What does it look like for a Christian who is without meekness? John Stott answers this question in a semi-comical way. But he says, I myself am quite happy to recite the general confession in church, and call myself a miserable sinner. It causes me no great problem. I can take it in my stride. But let somebody else come up to me after church and call me miserable and say, John, you really are a miserable sinner, and I want to punch him in the nose. In other words, he says, I am not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I would have just acknowledged before God that I am. He goes on to say that there is a basic hypocrisy here. There always is when meekness is absent. 
And so meekness is amazement. When people think and talk of you as well as they do, as well as they do, I believe it's Spurgeon who said something of the same lines. It's like if he says, basically, if someone is angry with you, do not be angry with them, for if they knew you more, right? If they knew, if they knew who you really were. And so this is, uh, this is the kind of text. So meekness doesn't ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It asks the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Those who are meek and have been humbled under the mighty hand of God, uh, they, they agree that sinners should everlastingly perish and they should be thrown to hell, but what they don't understand is why they're going to heaven. So meekness rests from self. They patiently wait on God. They have been humbled and they have been molded under the anvil of God's direction and instruction. They are submissive to him. A common misconception of, of this term, gentle or meek, is that some see that it denotes a kind of a concept of a negative concept of weakness. Um, that you allow yourself to be ran over. Um, but this is really missing the point. It truly is. Meekness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, who is God in full bloom. Meekness is, is the fruit of the Spirit in full bloom in you. And is, is nothing to, to, to second guess. Uh, it is the faithfulness of God by the power of God. Another, another way to term meekness is strength under control. Meekness is being angry and yet not sinning. That they are not unrighteous as Christians. We are not unrighteous because Christ is Lord over your, your, your anger. He is Lord over your affections. And so the people who have been taught by God love the things of God. They hate the things that God hates. And they are not who they used to be. I remember when I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was Cecilia came to my restaurant last night and, um, and uh, I had, a, I had a, just a rough night. I was running around and I, had a, I was about to leave and I was going to go like, check out my sermon. I was going to make sure everything was in line. And I got sat right when I was supposed to get off work. And so I was there for another two hours or so. And uh, I'm in the, I'm, it's, I, I work at a restaurant. And so my salary is based on tips and the generosity of people uh, and based on my, and based on, uh, uh, and based on uh, my service to them. And so I was, I, was, uh, I was just cleaning up at this table, and I was there for a couple of hours, and I really, really wasn't happy about it. And, uh, and uh, the, 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 the tab turned out to be a great amount, and uh, they only left me uh, basically a couple of dollars. And I was just wondering, I was just, I was just like, man, I told Cecilia last night, if I was still unconverted, what would I have done? But we could go to the, the parking lot and still, and still bless God's name together. We're truly good. We're blessed is His name, even though we just like I, you know, this the the service and. But I was just I was just telling that to her. It's like, man, if I was still unconverted and had the enmity and hatred in my heart, I don't know what I would have done. And so, we're not who we used to be. Meekness can have enemies, and love them, and meekness can receive cursing, and extend blessing. And Christ truly is the example of our behavior. 
And in 1 Peter 2.21 and two, through, two, through 23, it reads, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Christ is our example. And this is not a negative picture of weakness. This is the heavenly picture of weakness. This is what godly character looks like. Christ is our example. And this is the way that God has instructed us to act as Christians. And he was sinless and wholly pleasing to God in every respect. And this isn't all. There was, there was no one who battled harder for the souls of men or anyone who could compete with his level of fervor and commitment to the will and business of God. There's not one person in here who can compete with the zeal that Jesus Christ had when he was on this earth. He only lived three years in his ministry. He was only, his ministry only lasted three years, his public ministry you see that it says it's speaking of the business of God. And John 2.17 is as if Christ was speaking to the Father, zeal for your house will consume me. And just before that it says he made a scourge. It says that he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. And this is Jesus. This is our example. Meek, mild, as the old hymn goes. And this is, this is our example. We fight unrighteousness by righteousness and falsehood by the word of truth and persecution with love. We are to be faithful to God even in the ordinances, even if the ordinances of the land are against him. And we are to be obedient to him, even if men try to silence us. And so, though the meek and gentle do not, fend their, do not defend their own worth and worthiness before men, they die defending God's worth and worthiness before men. And who did this better than Christ? And so, if you are following in his footsteps, blessed are you. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so this brings us to the next beatitude. It's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so if you look at this beatitude, uh, what I noticed was, you'll no, what I noticed is a, a really a twofold manner. Uh, the sensation of this beatitude is really twofold. One that's initial and thereby experience in the unconverted sinner. And you have one that is continuous and thereby felt in the converted saint. And my question to you, friends, is this the experience of your spiritual appetite? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? What do you hunger for? And are you hungering for God? Are you hungering for his righteousness? 
In the grand scheme of things, throughout the history of redemption, I really do believe that there are two kinds of people. Those who love their sin and are unwilling to part with it, and those who see their sin and hate their sin and are willing to part with it. In the former, we see that the man or the woman is unwilling to part for their love of sin, and the, and, and the hand of God's grace is being removed, and they are, giving, and they are being given over to their love for sin. And for the latter, we see the hand of God's grace being imparted to this sinner, his mercy being imparted to the sinner as they're being drawn to God. John 6, 44, that no one comes to me except the Father, no one comes to the Father um, except, um, no one comes to the Father except, how's <laughs> this verse go? Through me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Forgive me, forgive me, I'm tongue twisted. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, that is how they come to God, by this mercy and grace, and how they are also prepared for justification. And th so this is, this is when men and women truly begin to bewail their life of sin, when God draws them closer to himself. And this is what brings a man like the publican, who is weary because of his heaviness of his sin, who beats his chest and he acknowledges that he is the problem and that he is the sinner and that he is undone. And if he doesn't get grace, he is undone. And so he cries to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And something very similar happens to Peter right before he became a disciple of Christ. I think you remember the story. Jesus goes, he, Jesus goes out, he gets into Peter's boat, and he says to him, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me or depart from me for I am a sinful man. For amazement has seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so what is happening in this text? This is what's happening. The mighty and majestic creator of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, stepped into Peter's boat. The one who in the beginning put all the fish in the sea, stirred them up to bless Peter and his crew to have an encounter with him. And Peter, already having some kind of knowledge of Jesus, as we see Jesus going to his house before this story, he couldn't take it. He knew that something was different about Christ by what he was doing. And, and this miracle had confirmed these things. And suddenly, it was as if terror began to roll through his body. And the extraordinary glory of Christ was being displayed and was melting him to nothingness in this scene. And so you see that, that, this, that this extraordinary glory of Christ caused Peter to cast himself at the feet of Christ and say, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So you see the presence of God in Christ was overwhelming. And he began to consider himself unworthy 
for, for the favor of God in Christ to be in his boat and to be the recipient of these blessings. And so this truly is when Christ draws near to someone, when the distance between a sinner and Christ, when, it, when this distance is bridged by the love and mercy and grace of God drawing to them, that you see this disruption of the sinner's life with what they used to love. And then they begin this, this, this is what we're talking about, is that this hungering, thirsting, not just for your sanctification, but also for your justification. As you've seen, as he's Peter here and the publican who is asking for mercy, begging for mercy as an unconverted man who leaves justified. And so this is what happens by the grace of God. And then it says, and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's incredible. This leaving all and coming to Christ for rest and righteousness is what we call hun hungering and thirsting for righteousness, in a, for a legal righteousness, a justifying righteousness, and is experienced in the unconverted when Christ draws them to himself. And there are people who only want heaven and do not want Christ. So you have the opposite. You have really religious men who do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see this in uh, the story of the rich young ruler. And it reads that a rich, uh, it says a ruler questioned him, Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's wrong with this picture? What you don't see in this picture is a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a hungering and thirsting for God. So you have Christ who is here instructing this man how he can have eternal and heavenly pleasures, which he could buy. He was wealthy. Usually man has to sell all that he has to go buy uh, the, the, this pearl of great price that Christ talks about in Matthew 13. But this man didn't know is that those who possess Christ, they possess all things. And he was worried about his house. He was worried about his land or whatever it was that he possessed. And so those who hunger and thirst for Christ, they, they sell all things so that they might obtain Christ, who is truly everything to them. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
For the unbeliever and the believer alike, we also have the beckoning call of Christ to come and drink and be satisfied in him. You remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And again, we have now on that day, this is John 7, 37. Now on that day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In Luke 6, 6, 21, blessed are those who hunger now for you shall be satisfied. And John 6, 33 says, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And notice this, that it is not, it is not blessed are those who at one time have been thirsty or, or have thirsted, but blessed are those who thirst and, and those who hunger. So if you have claimed to have been thirsty at one time or were hungry at one time and are not presently thirsty for God and hungering after righteousness, then you are not blessed presently. This is the desires of the hearts of believers. It is primarily spiritual over and against that which is material. They are spiritually hungry. They seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Not just legal justification and, or a right, a right relationship with God, but moral righteousness for themselves also and a social righteousness for the world. The man of God or the man of woman has an inner longing for moral consecration, wholehearted devotion to God who is his sanctifying righteousness. Justification and sanctification must never be separated. The believer once longed for imputed righteousness, and now he longs for imparted righteousness, for God to, to, to keep making him, uh, to keep renewing him after the image of God, or, or to keep renewing his mind and to, to keep him from the world. And so what does it look like to yearn for holiness? And what does it look like to, to yearn to be useful for God? I, I, I remember this quote by Robert Murray McChain, and he says this. He says, I am also deepened in my, in my conviction that if we are to be instruments in such a work of revival, we must be purified from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Oh, cry for personal holiness, Constant nearness to God by the blood of the Lamb. Bask in His beams, lie back in the arms of His love. Be filled with His Spirit, or all success in the ministry will only be to your everlasting confusion. You know how I have always insisted on this with you. It is because I have felt the need myself. Take heed, dear friend, do not think any sin trivial. Remember, it will have everlasting consequences. Oh, to have Brainerd's heart for perfect holiness, to be holy as God is holy, pure as Christ is pure, and perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. 
So we see that the soul of the believer is to long for God. In a sense, you see this, you really see this all over Scripture, how believers are longing for God and yearning from Him. And when God is not near to them, they truly uh, bewail themselves and bemoan themselves, like David in Psalm 42, right? He says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, thirsts for you. He says his tears were his food constantly. Where can I go to meet God? Where can I go to, to find God in his nearness, in his love? He was truly undone if God was not filling his soul with nearness and love and peace. And these saints of God, they had an unquenchable desire to hunger and to know God, even though they knew him intimately. Even Paul, here's a man here that he saw the Lord and was being taught by him and his revelation being revealed to him by God. And he says, oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then you have masterful theologians like John Nowen. He says, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, and hereon would I die, and hereon would I dwell in thought and affection until all things here below become as dead and deformed things, no longer in any way calling out for my affectionate embraces. So our faith is not built on a session of drinking, but a a, a continual, a state of continual drinking and a continual state of God pouring uh, his blessing into us and his power into us. The believer doesn't uh, satisfy his spiritual thirst by drinking from a cup once, but from the internal well that is always abiding in him and whose sustenance is provided by the Holy Spirit. And only when we reach heaven will we hunger and thirst no more. That is the promise of God. And uh, I'm going to close with that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your goodness to us today. And thank you, Lord, for bestowing on us your mercies that we are utterly undeserving of. I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in holiness and baptize us in love and purity and unity. And I pray that, Lord, that you would make us more like yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for enabling us to see our sin and making us humble and meek and giving us the place which is rightly ours at your feet. And Lord, I, I thank you for allowing us to, uh, to, to hunger and thirst for you. And not only to hunger and thirst, God, but I thank you for your promise, Lord, that we shall be filled and that we shall be satisfied. And so, Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would continue to lead us. We pray that you would continue to sanctify us. And we thank you for your word, and we bless your name, and it's your name we pray. Amen.